Hey everyone, Kevin Kadick for Grandstanding on Yahoo Sports. The Fall Classic is upon us, and while we'll be talking the little Dodgers-Astros, we'll also be dialing back the clock about half a century to revisit one of the best World Series of all time. New York Times columnist Sridhar Papu has written a fantastic new book called The Year of the Pitcher, which focuses on Bob Gibson, Danny McLean, and the 68 World Series between the Cardinals and Tigers. It also involves the most tumultuous year in American history. All ahead on the next Grandstanding. Welcome to Grandstanding. I am Jay Busby. That is Kevin Cada. It is October. The weather is cooling. Postseason baseball is upon us. The World Series begins this week. Astros versus Dodgers. Kevin, you are a baseball guy. You must absolutely love this time of year more than any other. I do, but I have to say, you say Astros Dodgers, and it still is weird to me. Oh, I know. I, I want oh, to tell you. I want, I want to tell you a story about I don't know two or three months ago. The Dodgers and Astros were playing real well. I was talking with someone. I can't remember who it was with. And they're like, who do you, you know, who do you think is going to make the World Series? I said, well, you know what? The Dodgers and Astros are are looking pretty good. They're probably either one of those is going to come out of the National League. And then I was like, oh, no. I, I'm still making the mistake. They've been in what? They've been in the American League for five years now. It still doesn't seem right. It's because whatever your baseball memory is when you're a kid, that it gets fixed in cement in your brain. And so, yeah, I'm the same way. Well, I, you know, but you still feel that way about the Brewers? Do you still feel that way about, like, the, the Seahawks? Did you think it was weird the Seahawks were representing the NFC in the, in the Super Bowl? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's still a little bit of that. Yeah, and the Brewers, you still think of them as being an AL team. But, yeah, I saw people kind of admitting to that on Twitter uh, the, the last couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, the, the Astros are the American League. And I was glad to see that I wasn't the only one that was still thinking that same way. You know, and the thing was, I, I talked to that person, and then I never corrected myself because I, like, realized it, like, 20 minutes later. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, that person has to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, they've got, and they'd be right. They've got objective evidence. Most of us just go on based on our gut instinct. Yeah, I think it's a great, you know, it's a great fall classic. I, I know a lot of people, especially networks, were hoping for Yankees Dodgers. You know, I wasn't there. I was really hoping for that that Astros Indians ALCS. Yeah. Um, until the Yankees ruined that and the, and the Indians choked. Um, but I feel like with Dodgers Astros, we're really getting the, the best series possible. Uh, I, I think it's gonna be great. Tonight is game one. It's gonna be like a hundred degrees, which is, is is kind of insane. But you've got two <laughs> fan bases that are hungry for a title. Uh, it's been. 29 years, as you might have heard, since the Dodgers were even there. Right. Uh, the Astros were there 10 years ago as the American League uh, representative. As, as the National League representative. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've never won in their you know 50 year plus history. Uh, so I, I think I think it's going to be great. I mean, there's compelling characters on on either side, and you know, I saw Sports Illustrated. They put out their predictions among their eight experts and. They had seven got seven people picking the Dodgers and and one picking the Astros and I'm not saying the Dodgers aren't going to win but they don't seem like seven to one favorites to me um, so I, I think it's be fun yeah the Sports Illustrated bit is funny because there's there there are dueling curses at work here we all know about the Sports Illustrated cover jinx it and uh, earlier this year they put the Dodgers as the greatest team in baseball and then the Dodgers immediately proceeded to lose what 19 out of 21 <laughs> games or something like that but even right. cooler is that. Three years ago, they predicted that the Astros were going to win the 2017 World Series. And this is a time when the Astros just sucked. I mean, they were barely breaking 60 wins, and so everyone is laughing about it. But baseball is one of those sports where if you've got the right farm team, if you've got everything kind of burbling below the surface, it can come and come to the fore. And that's what that's what it's done here. Now, obviously, you're more clued into baseball than I am. You were uh, you were at Wrigley Field for the Cubs-Dodgers series uh, last week. 
give us a sense of, of the big storylines, the big figures that we ought to be watching out for this week. Well, I think obviously the number one from the from the Dodgers side is Clayton Kershaw. I mean, he's a generational pitcher. He's a, a, a you know a unbelievable talent. Maybe maybe one of the best pitchers we've we've seen since uh, Greg Maddox. I mean, people are saying, oh, Clayton Kershaw is the best pitcher we've seen since since we've been alive. It's like, well, let's not go that far because we've seen Clemens and Maddox and and who are and Mariano Rivera, whoever else. So let's not go that far. But I mean, he has been amazing to watch. Uh, you know, for so long, he was really the only horse in that that rotation. They'd, they'd get to the playoffs, and it'd be him. And he obviously had his playoff struggles, but you know, he'd struggle, and then there'd be no one to behind him to pick him up. Well, well, now they now they have people behind him to pick up. You know, pick him up. Um, so I, I think it's be interesting to watch him. And from a personal standpoint, in, in 2007, I covered the Single A Midwest All Star Game out here in Geneva, Illinois, and Clayton Kershaw started that game. And I remember thinking, oh, man, wouldn't, wouldn't this be awesome if this guy goes on to be a good pitcher? Because here I am covering him. And <laughs> I think I wrote – he actually uh, – someone hit a home run off of him. Some I, I, some guy who never got to the, the major leagues, I went back and looked. Some guy hit a home run off of him in, in his appearance. Uh, and I talked to Kershaw that day, and he was 18 years old and uh, not media savvy at all. I mean, probably one of the more painful interviews I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and – so to go from that and then to see him in the bowels of Wrigley Field last what Wednesday night Thursday night sitting behind the dais with with his you know his uh, probably three year old daughter on his lap and his family watching I thought man that, that's pretty cool from from my standpoint kind of see being able to see that go full circle um, so I, I I'm I, I'm pulling for Kershaw I think he's a good guy he does a lot of good things with his wife in, in terms of charity. Uh, so that that'll be fun to watch. Um, with the Dodgers, I think you know people are saying, "Oh, you know, it's great that they're finally there." From my my vantage point, it's like, well, what took so long? You, you saw that the Astros turned things around so quickly within three years. Dodgers have been good for about a decade now. That's been under two different ownership groups: the McCourts and um, and and now now the big money uh, partners. But they've been throwing money at players just just well, that, left and right. That's what I'm saying. So it's it's actually kind of interesting. It's like it's like money doesn't buy championships, but what it does it, it buys you out of a lot of mistakes. There's 83 and a half million dollars of dead money on the Dodgers payroll this year. Oh and Carl Crawford is making 22 million bucks, and he's going to have a great seat from his ranch in I think Texas. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, you just go back and you look. You're like, wow, this is this is a great All Star team from 2007 that they signed. You know. <laughs> Um, so, so I, I think that, I think that part is kind of interesting. I mean, the, the Dodgers are kind of the, the old school Yankees in disguise, right? So if, if you're against big money teams, you're rooting against the Dodgers. Uh, the Astros have, you know, done, you know, done a lot of right, done, a, done it quote unquote the right way. Uh, they have a lot of baseball prospectus alumni in their front office. So obviously a lot of the people on Twitter are, are rooting for them. So I'm excited for it to go down. I hope it's a good series. Yeah, it's it's fun when you don't have a rooting interest uh, one way or the other. You just want you just want it to be a good series all the way around. But uh, wait, I, I didn't I didn't mention Kate Upton. That's oh his, yeah, oh there you go. There's your there's your rooting. Kate interest. Upton in the Tequila Sunrise Astros jersey. That's <laughs> for baseball. There, that's pretty good. Yeah, uh, my my only real connection to the Astros is a in terms of. They've got Brian McCann, the old Braves guy, and I. Same thing. I talked to him when he was about eighteen, and 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 same deal. He just had zero baseball savvy, and he was here to hit, and and it turned out okay for him. Um, and then also they have Evan Gaddis, who has the greatest 
nickname in all of baseball, Oso Blanco, the White Bear. So that's enough to that's enough to pull for a team. It's just two guys, two former Braves on their roster. Okay, so uh, my question for you is this: Yeah, is Nolan Ryan a Texas Ranger or a Houston Astro? That's a good question. Because obviously he was was with the Rangers through their last couple of World Series visits. Now he's back on the Astro side of things. It's like pick a side, man. I well, obviously he's making money wherever he goes. Okay, but. no, well here here's the answer to that. What's He's Mr. Most, Texas, when, right? He is, he is, he is, yeah. When you think of Nolan Ryan, what is the image that you think of? Just right now, without thinking about it, what's the image you think of? Well, you it's know what, probably and unfortunately the Robin Ventura Exactly, fight. and what's he wearing in that? He's wearing a Texas Rangers hat, so there you go. But you grew up with him in a, well, I don't know, what you grew up with him probably in a New York Mets uniform. Oh, but. shut up. <laughs> I, he wore a lot of different uniforms. He did, obviously. he did, yeah. He there was that, seven that, no-hitters and... I think, that, I think that's a good segue into our interview here. Joining us now, Sridhar Papu, author of the great new book, Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and the End of Baseball's Golden Age. 1968 was a long time ago. I know because it was the year that I was born and I am old as hell. But what drew you to this particular flashpoint in both uh, baseball and American history? What was, was there an anecdote? Was there a story? Was there something that you said, this is what I can run with, this is what I can make into a book? Well, you know, on two fronts, um, you know, as a student of American history, um, you're drawn to 1968 because obviously with everything that happened with the assassinations of King and Robert Kennedy and and the, the, both the race riots and the riots of the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention, you know, it was the most tumultuous year in, in modern history. But, but also, you know, as a baseball fan, and I don't know if you feel the same way, you know, you sort of learn the game by osmosis. Uh, you know, I can have a conversation about Ted Williams having, you know, never been even close to seeing him play. <laughs> and so when it came time to, you know, wanting to write a baseball book, you know, the I, as, as what popped in my head was Denny McLean and 31 wins and, and Bob Gibson and that 1.12 ERA. And it just sort of took off from there. Well, let's dig into these players here. You've got great anecdotes of both of them that are remarkable because they're so unlike what you would see today. Bob Gibson has a sign in his locker that says, I'm not prejudiced. I hate everybody. Uh, Denny McLean is out playing the organ uh, at a hotel until uh, midnight the night before the World Series. If either of these had happened today, Twitter would have just exploded. These guys would have been in the news cycle for days. How do you think that each of these two guys would have fared uh, in the world, the, the social media 24-7 world of uh, 2017? I think Denny would have actually relished it. Uh, you know, in some ways, you know, I sort of think that Denny kind of saw the future uh, because he saw, he understood the idea of a brand and he wanted to build his life outside of baseball. Um, but he just, he just misses the mark. I mean, because he's not Joe Namath. And so he, his idea is to build this brand, um, sort of the playboy reputation, even though, um, he wasn't necessarily a playboy, but, uh, but he also saw a future as, you know, playing the organ as a, um, as an outlet <laughs> after his baseball <laughs> life, you know, and this is 1968 and they're actually, he did actually record an album, uh, that year. And, uh, <laughs> I haven't listened to it. It's not my, the organ is not, is not my taste, but, you know, I, th- I think he would have. Um, I think he would have really uh, relished it uh, and uh, relished the attention. And you know, I mean, Gibson would have just stayed away. And a lot of baseball players, um, as you know, uh, stay away from social media, unlike uh, some of the NFL or NBA counterparts. And you know, because I, I, you know, even 
uh, back then, I think he was kind of misunderstood. You know, there's a sport magazine, which I don't know if you remember, which was a tremendous, tremendous publication and um, was an invaluable resource for me, uh, labeled Gibson, you know, the symbol of a new breed. And I really saw him as a, kind of a throwback. I think, you know, sort of the pitching equivalent of Ted Williams or even DiMaggio is someone who came to the park, you know, didn't have much use for the press, didn't have much use for fans even, and uh, and was just solely uh, uh, dedicated to his craft. Um, that said, I mean, it's, it's, you know, his reputation as being, uh, you know, this mean, fearsome guy that extended to uh, members of the opposite team didn't necessarily uh, extend to his, his own teammates, whom he uh, loved, and anyone you talk to, uh, that played with him in 1964 or 1967 or 68 on, on those great Cardinal teams said he was the absolute best teammate in the world. And so, um, but in today's, uh, I think in, in today's era, I think he, uh, you know, I think he would have just not necessarily be left behind, but uh, he would, he would have been uncomfortable. It's, it's interesting to me, you know, usually when you go back and, and write these, these sports biographies, you know, quarter century later, half a century later, you're cutting through a lot of myth, whether it's Muhammad Ali or Babe Ruth or, or Lou Gehrig or whatever. Um, and you have to cut through a lot of that to get to how human these guys actually were. With Bob Gibson and Denny McLean, I think it's always been obvious to to any of us that these guys were, were human. They had their flaws. Um, you know, in the case of McLean, a lot of times he just couldn't get out of his own way. How attractive was that aspect to you as a writer uh, that, that both of these guys weren't really necessarily um, rooted in, in myth or whatever, despite a 112 ERA or, or 31 wins. Yeah. I mean, I, I think especially baseball um, lends itself to myth, maybe more than other sports. And so a lot of it is unpacking. And so you, you have these natural assumptions going in uh, and a lot, a lot of that book I spend unpacking my own um, presumptions going in, not only about the players, but about the time and about, you know, the game itself. Um, so, you know, and then, and then you just start to discover things about Gibson and, and McLean, you know, from their early and see, you know, how they ended up, how they did. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are guys that, um, you know, Gibson never knew his dad, but he had his older brother, Josh. Who I, I kind of feel like, should be a, a patron saint of Omaha because of so many people <laughs> that he helped. I mean, um, he helped, you know, guys like Bob Boozer in basketball and Gail Sayers mm-hmm. in football, uh, you know, uh, rise to the levels they did. And, and, you know, of course his brother, uh, Bob, who's committed to, you know, getting to the major leagues. And then, you know, Denny, whose father was really a terrible guy and alcoholic who, um, was ruthless with him, but, uh, you know, uh, but could see Denny's talent. And both, and you know, you know, made him practice practice the piano and the organ, and, and you know, but um, was you know strict about his pitching, and who dies at a very early age, leaving Denny to himself. And mm-hmm. you know, from that moment on, Denny thought he could do whatever he wanted, and he did. And you know, you sort of see that recklessness, um, um, uh, you know, build and build and build, and. You know, one of the things is that, you know, it wasn't a straight line. As we know, you know, Denny has done, you know, two stints in prison and, you know, has done some very bad stuff in, uh, in his uh, baseball life and, you know, was actually even associated with gamblers in, in, his, in his baseball life. But 
it wasn't a straight line. It was kind of a zigzag to the, getting to the point that, that he actually was uh, ended up that. So we talked about maybe the baseball players aren't rooted in myth, but that year is uh, that baseball season is, and you clearly wrestle with the notion when you're writing in the book uh, about, um, you know, the, the idea that baseball provided a reprieve for an America in 1968. Um, and then similarly for Detroit, once they won the world series, but after all these years, like researching, writing the book, where do you ultimately fall on that? I know you don't buy into it, but do you buy into any part of it? You know, I think you can buy into a little bit of it. I mean, one of the more interesting things was going into the book, I thought I would find baseball as politicized as uh, an atmosphere as you found in other sports. I mean, we have to remember this is the year of the proposed Olympic boycott and, you know, the raised black fists at the, at the Olympics and guys like Jim Brown and Bill Russell and, you know, Tommy Davis, uh, or um, I think Tommy Davis, um, you know, speaking out. And, you know, baseball exists in this bubble, and you don't see any players, and, and African-American players especially, you know, mm-hmm. talking about these issues. And Jackie Robinson uh, calling them out and being uh, tremendously frustrated uh, with uh, what was going on. And, you know, and this myth that it provided this, this refuge, and you know, maybe it did for a 13, 14-year-old boy, but you know, for the rest of the country, it, it didn't. And especially in Detroit, and I deal with it in the book, you know, this follows the 1967 riots in Detroit, you know, one of the worst race riots in American history, if not the worst. And there's been a whole package industry built up in Detroit that, uh, and Willie Horton, the great outfielder for the Tigers, um, uh, and who grew up in Detroit has said things like, uh, you know, God uh, put the 68 tigers on, uh, earth to heal the city. Well, <laughs> you know, that isn't, it isn't true. And, you know, I mean, you know, that year, you know, I was, uh, at a recent event, um, someone who was there the night the tigers won the pennant, you know, he said, talking about, you know, black and white, you know, hugging each other afterwards. And, and we have to remember then that George Wallace, uh, the segregationist candidate won, and the Democratic primary won every single white ward in Detroit. So, you know, I mean, a lot of what this book is about is limits. And, you know, there's only so, so much that uh, that sports can do. And, and you know, we, we have to step away from this mythology. And mm-hmm. when we talk about, oh, you know, we, we need this or that city needed that. Well, I mean, I mean, if you look at, you know, you know even recent events with, I mean, Houston's in the World Series and obviously right. – um, and uh, just had a tremendous tragedy, but uh, Houston needs a lot more than uh, a baseball team in the World Series to you know uh, to uh, to to recover. And so you know, I think it's um, you know the product of our age when we say uh, that that um, that sports and you know one team can can heal all these things when there are more complicated issues at heart. And and I think it. it um, I think it, it's a very it's very convenient, and especially you know going back to Detroit. I mean, it started early with guys like uh, Governor George Romney, who was Mitt's father, and uh, you know businessmen like uh, William Ford, you know, say, uh, talking about uh, you know how the Tigers, you know, save the save the city when in fact you know they didn't. 
So let's dig into uh, Bob Gibson here for a second here. You mentioned that he didn't uh, read scouting reports on other teams. He just rear back and throw whoever was in the batting box, batter's box. Uh, that's the kind of thing that would make uh, our friend Jonah Carey just clutch his chest in horror that uh, <laughs> no, no analytics usage whatsoever. Uh, what else surprised you about the game of baseball itself as you started digging into it? Obviously, 1968 was a watershed year in terms of the end of an era, but what about the game would we not recognize or would surprise us today? Well, I mean, overall, 1968 is unrecognizable. I mean, just simply because of the dominance of, uh, I mean, it is called the year of the pitcher because, I mean, not only Gibson and McLean, but, you know, guys like Louis Tiant and, um, and, and, um, and Don Drysdale with his 58 uh, and two-thirds uh, scoreless innings. I mean, what surprised me, I guess, you know, in terms of the game is, especially even in the World Series, was um, if you look at a team like the St. Louis Cardinals, who are heavily favored, um, and their just utter lack of offense, and, and the fact that, that, you know, these were supposed to be, um, they were supposed to walk away with a championship. But, you know, I mean, what surprised me um, even more was, I mean, we talk about how uh, I mean, people uh, long for how tough these guys were. Uh, I mean, in a game of specialization and, you know, seemingly like 10-hour games, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, these guys were, I mean, starters were expected to finish and, and all that, but the amount of pain they went through is unimaginable. I mean, Denny McLean by 1968 is addicted to cortisone, uh, to a point where that would, you know, uh, shorten his career by and end it by the age of 29. Uh, but even, you know, a guy like Jim Maloney, I mean, his arm is falling off, I think, in 1968, 1969. And his manager, Dave Bristol, who preceded uh, Sparky Anderson in Cincinnati, said, I, you know, I don't want to hear any more excuses. And so, you know, the the idea of that, you know, these guys were tougher. Well, I mean, they had to be tougher because, they, you know, they were playing on year-to-year contracts. And, you know, they, they just felt they had to go out and do it. And because, they, you know, they were playing for their livelihoods. And so, I mean, yes, they were tough men. Yes, Gibson and McLean and, and Drysdale were, you know, they wanted to finish. And, uh, but, you know, they, they kind of had to. And so, um, not, not, and so, I mean, the idea that somehow baseball players are weaker now or um, I, wouldn't, I would never call a baseball player uh, prima donna because – of the of what they have to go through on, on a, um, uh, during a season, but um, just the amount of physical uh, uh, the the toll uh, physically that these guys um, had to t- uh, take in order to uh, reach their heights um, was was pretty astonishing to me. Yeah, it was obviously a different time in 1968. I'm a little jealous that you wrote this book because there's just so many different things about baseball you can write about, whether it's the pitcher's dominance, but really that was the last year of the, the high mound, the last year before divisional play. Uh, television didn't play as big of a role as it as it did it does now. Um, as a more modern baseball fan, probably someone who's around my age and, and not not Jay Busby's, <laughs> like, do you, you know, and, and you weren't alive for that, but do you hold like do you romanticize that or do you like maybe what you grew up with in the late seventies and eighties or do you like the the game better now like where do you fall? I mean, um, I, I think we you always I think you always sort of romanticize the the period that uh, you fall in love with the game. <laughs> right. So you know I came 
I mean, I came of age in the eighties and I, you know, uh, near Cincinnati. So of course, you know, Eric Davis is the greatest center fielder ever lived <laughs> you know, to me. Um, and you know, I mean, of course, Detroit fans will look longingly, uh, to the 68 Tigers. And, um, so, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's easy to romanticize, um, the sport, especially baseball. I think baseball more than any other sport because of its history and because, you know, like I said, you you know these guys through osmosis. Any baseball fan knows who uh, Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams or Jackie Robinson or Sandy Koufax is. And so whenever the game catches you, you know, you, you tend to look back. And, you know, I mean, having grown up near Cincinnati, uh, I always make the joke that you learn the name of the great eight uh, who consisted uh, of the lineup of the Big Red Machine before you, you can even talk. <laughs> and so, uh, and you know, I, um, uh, a, a family friend uh, whose son is uh, 17 uh, went uh, uh, to a game, uh, I, I guess, last season because there was a, a reunion of, of the machine. And he's like, I just wanted to see those guys. And it's like, yeah. you know, they're in their 70s. But, um, you know, I mean, um, I, I don't know if you, you have the same feelings about it, but, I mean, baseball um, just lends itself to nostalgia. And sometimes I think it helps it holds the game back because – yeah. It's, it, you know, um, because it's not necessarily forward thinking uh, in, in how it goes about it. And it romanticizes the past that, you know, p- uh, potential fans uh, um, growing up, uh, you know, with smartphones and and uh, the variety of things that they have. You know, these young rubber steppers or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might, not necessarily, might not necessarily appreciate. Um, um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think baseball um, has today has done a very good job at uh promoting its stars um i mean yeah. i mean if you if you look at mike trout or bryce harper i don't you know it's hard to think of um them being known commodities outside of uh baseball fans as opposed to someone like peyton manning who's on uh still on tv you know pitching um every single product known to man yeah, I think it's going to be interesting for baseball because I think I would I would submit that part of the reason we're so familiar with with Williams and DiMaggio and and whoever else is because we grew up reading a certain generation of sports writers who grew up kind of pushing those guys. Now kids today are maybe you know reading sport you know reading sports writers and yeah we push Ken Griffey Jr. and and other you know other and Greg Maddox. Uh, but at the same time, we're pushing, you know, Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and Carl Malone in a way that we never had before. And, and Peyton Manning is, is now the pitch man instead of Joe DiMaggio selling coffee machines on TV. So I, I think like baseball is kind of like an interesting when it when it comes to the story of the game being passed down. I think it's an interesting an, an interesting position. That said, I mean, as as you know, like baseball still provides like the best literature, the best you know, the best reason to write a book. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting when we kind of go back and look at the 80s and 90s. What are the books written out of out of those, um, and, and what kind of furthers the, the you know the kind of oral history or the, how we pass it down from from generation to generation. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to bring up is this week on the undefeated, they actually wrote a piece uh, saying the NFL is in danger of becoming Major League Baseball if they don't allow their players to express themselves uh, the way maybe NBA players do on social media. Uh, as you alluded to, 
1968, the clubhouse was still a very close place. People did not speak out. I think in 2017, it's even it's even worse. <laughs> do you think baseball can ever get to that place, or do you just think the culture and, and and code of the clubhouse just will never allow for that to happen? And not only that, but combine it with the demographics of the sport and where there's there's fewer black players, you know, playing than ever. Well, I think the demographics um, now more than ever play a part in it. I, you know, 7.7% of major league roster uh, of, um, of all major league baseball um, is African-American. And, you know, I mean, look, I mean, the sport is perhaps more integrated than ever. I mean, combined with Latin players, I mean, it, it you know, goes past, you know, 42%. But again, the demographics and, you know, especially what we're talking about uh, now, the issues of race and inequality in America, uh, specifically with uh, African-Americans, um, does not, um, translate to the clubhouses of Major League Baseball, and you know, I mean, the clubhouse still is a, a, a is a, a pretty close place, and for you know, for whatever reason, and um, you know, whether I mean, if you look, and actually, if you look back in terms of like of how tight ownership was and and how controlling it was in the 1960s. I mean, I I think that you know, possibly uh, um, football does have. Uh, um, um, does risk that chance of, of becoming baseball in terms of its, its social relevancy. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, speaking to baseball um, itself during these times, you know, one player knelt uh, during um, the aftermath of, uh, of all this and, and another one was dissuaded. And, you know, I'm sure Rob meant, uh, Rob Manfred uh, sort of wiped his brow and said, "Phew!" But at the same time, <laughs> you know, it does risk it, uh, it. Baseball itself also risks, you know, uh, social irrelevancy. You know, at a time when you know the NBA has coaches and 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 players uh, speaking out as they do. Um, you know, I mean, the NBA did not pick this fight, and you know, regardless of what Colin Kaepernick did, they did, the NFL did not pick this fight, and yet they find themselves in and this political maelstrom and, you know, baseball continues to go on and, you know, we'll have a great world series, I, I think, but, and then it'll be over. And, um, I, I don't think, I, I don't think, uh, it's good for the game that, uh, that you don't have, you know, players involved in this, in this, uh, ongoing national conversation about sports and, uh, and the role it plays in society. Um, and I think baseball has to sort of take a look at that. It's interesting you say that because uh, I write a lot about the NFL and I have fans every day yeah. telling me in no uncertain terms how much they wish players were not involved in uh, in these in these kinds of political activism and, and speaking out against uh, political figures. When you look at the fans in 1968, obviously it was not as as politics and sports were not as intertwined as they are today. But when you look at the, when you look back at the fans, were they looking at baseball as a reprieve or as a, as a, as a retreat, as a safe place from uh, the politics? Was there any kind of sense that, 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 that baseball was in a way reflecting the politics of the times? You know, I think that, I mean, so one of the pivotal moments in the book is following Robert Kennedy's assassination. And, uh, I view it as a very pivotal, I mean, and Marvin Miller, uh, before he passed away, I had one of the um, his last interviews, and we talked about uh, um, the aftermath and what happened. Um, for people who don't know, was you know players did, didn't want to play that weekend. Uh, it was the, the, the day of the funeral and the day of national mourning, and you had a weak commissioner in uh, William Eckhart who made the mistake of letting teams sort of decide. 
And so, uh, you know, some teams on that Saturday said, well, you, um, we can start the game after um, Kennedy is uh, laid to rest in Arlington, which didn't happen until 1030 at night. So you had a team like the Reds who basically forced their players onto the field and, and the, a team like the Mets who said, you know, we're not playing today. Like, um, it's not a political um, uh, uh, thing for us, but, you know, he was a senator from our state and we're just not playing. And they're playing the Giants. Uh, in San Francisco, and and uh, Horace Stoneham, owner of the Giants, was furious and wrote this very condescending note saying, "You know, the Mets are depriving young fans of Bat Day." And so, um, <laughs> Bat Day serious and, business. You know, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so I uh, and so, um, but at the same time, you had a sellout crowd um, in Cincinnati that wanted to see baseball. And, you know, and, and management said, you know, you kind of have to go out there. And um, even on the, even when Don Drysdale uh, broke the scoreless ending streak, it, w- it was that night. And so even, you know, he, I mean, he was a friend of Kennedy and, you know, he wore a black armband and, and watched, um, you know, the funeral before he, uh, the session before he got to the game, but it was a packed house in Dr. Stadium. So, I mean, obviously it was on the minds of, uh, of, uh, of everyone. But at the same time, I don't know. I don't know if you, whether you can call it or a pre. You know, maybe it's a two-hour escape, but it's not. Uh, you know, it, it, it has a limitation in terms of. You know, once this happens, then you have to go back to real life, and and real life in 1968 um, was not was not pleasant. So, you know, possibly, um, um, uh, you know, fans. Again, I didn't live through that period, so. You know, possibly fans felt, oh, okay, this is, you know, uh, like, you know, let's just go to the ball game or, uh, or you know, hopefully watch it on the game of the week. But um, overall, I, I think that um, again, you know, baseball existing in, um, as a bubble, and you know, fans sort of walking in, but then they have to walk out again and and, and deal with the consequences of real life. Um, and, and again, that sort of brings up more complicated issues uh, about you know where sports. Um, uh, um, and its place lies in, in, in society. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time today, Streeter. One final question before we go. I just kind of want to know, what are these guys like today? I know that uh, one guy participated, another guy didn't. Uh, it's probably not too hard to figure out, but what was it like tracking these guys <laughs> down and, and all that? Uh, you know, Denny's an easy guy to find because, um, <laughs> you know, six. I mean, you know, he actually did have a great 1969 season, uh, and you know, he's a guy that talks a lot, but needs to be fact-checked almost sentence by sentence. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the book, you know, I spent two days in Michigan but, uh, with him, but one day he forgot to um, pick me up at at a uh, at a big boy house in, in Novi, Michigan. So, uh, and then glamorous two weeks life later, of an I <laughs> and then yeah, and then I two weeks later I emailed him because he had asked me to, and he asked me who I was. So, and then. And then with uh, Gibson, I did everything I could to, you know, convince him to talk to me. Uh, his best friend, Rodney Weed, who um, came up with him in Omaha and Lalas in St. Louis, uh, he and I spoke extensively. I interviewed both his ghostwriters, including the late Phil Pepe. Uh, um, and, um, you know, I felt like everyone in the world tried to reach out to him for me and, and didn't. And, you know, at the very end of the book, both of them are supposed to appear at, uh, at a baseball card show together you know, Dunny doesn't show. Uh, and then I'm trying to give uh, Gibson this, uh, a letter basically 
you know, uh, explaining how, why I want to talk to him and I'm just sort of shooed away and, and we had this very terse exchange. And so, but, you know, I mean, and again, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but, you know, you know with older baseball players, I feel, and older athletes, I, you know, it's sort of their right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, we, we want them to be 27 for the rest of their lives and yeah. they're not, but, but as Gibson's ghost, uh, second ghostwriter, Lonnie Wheeler, who's done three books with said, it's like, you know, he, he, he's built up this persona or we remember him when everybody's, when everyone talks about Gibson, they're like, Oh, he's the fiercest competitor. He was mean and all that. And he kind of likes it. And so that, um, so that people leave him alone so he can, you know, play apparently as an in, insane train set in his home in Omaha. And so <laughs> he spends, he spends a lot of time with it. And, you know, people ask him, it's like, why don't you live in St. Louis? It's, I mean, if he went to uh, dinner in St. Louis, I mean, no one would leave him alone. And, you know, he's a guy that, you know, uh, relishes his privacy and, and, and likes his trains. So, um, um, you know, he's so in, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, it's kind of, kind of a contradiction of, of saying, you know, I'm a stranger to the game, which is uh, the name of um, his second autobiography. But at the same time, um, he kind of wants to stay a part of the game. The book is You're the Pitcher. The author is Sridhar Papu. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. This is uh, it's great reading for anyone interested in history or baseball. It'll give you an appreciation of, of both in the same package. Uh, thanks again for taking so much time with us. Oh, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It was a lovely talking to you. And there he goes. The great thing about sports books that intertwine history is that you can you can read about how one influences the other without having the the white hot rage that just seems to course through everybody's veins when it's about <laughs> something that happens in 2017. We've got half a century's worth of of distance between us and this, and and you know obviously by all accounts, 1968 was was a more tumultuous year even than our current era, mm-hmm. but still. You can you can look at it with a little bit more of a of, of academic uh, uh, impartiality than you can right now. Yeah, it certainly seems like that. It makes you wonder, uh, forty nine years from now, what's going to be the book that comes out about this era, and what's it going to be about? Is it going to be about Colin Kaepernick? Will it be about LeBron James' Twitter and the NBA? Uh, you know, what will the focus be? It won't be about baseball. I mean, they've, they no, have one guy, no. Bruce Maxwell from the A's who, who took a knee. It really didn't make that many. I mean, I think he did it on a weekend that was um, a football weekend, so it didn't make any waves. I uh, didn't for, do it for a contender. We haven't seen any uh, anyone in the in the postseason step up and, and really kind of make his voice heard. Uh, so it's not going to be baseball. Uh, it's going to be called President Popovich. President Popovich goes to Washington. Yeah, that's that's exactly. a question, yeah. That's a, that's a that's not a good question, but a, a, a good thought. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap it here. Go, uh, go Astros, go Dodgers. Yep. Go buy uh, Streeter's book. It's good. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to Grandstanding on your podcast provider of choice. Tell a friend about us. That's how we're going to dominate the world. Word of mouth, one listener at a time. For Kevin Kaduk, I am Jay Busby. This has been Grandstanding on Yahoo Sports, and we'll see you soon.